Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry. Welcome, Mark Zimmett from Zimmett Healthcare Services to our HFAM Quality Care Podcast. How are you, my friend? Very well. Good morning. Thank you so much for making the time. We really appreciate it. Anytime. So, Mark, you got to tell me, you know, you go to Syracuse, you get an undergraduate degree, a CPA, accounting degree. You go on and you get your master's degree from the Zicklin School of Business at March Sinai School of Medicine. And then you end up becoming like a leader in accountancy and forming the predecessor of Zimit Healthcare Services. How did you come about founding and becoming so prominent in Zimit Healthcare Services? Well, you know, a little bit of dumb luck and a little bit of hating what I was doing. So I never did public accounting. I got my accounting degree. I came out, I was working for Lehman Brothers as a trading assistant in Latin American debt. And I was absolutely miserable. So I did that for about a year. My father was an accountant and worked for one of the Medicare fiscal intermediaries and was an independent consultant doing work for hospitals, hospital cost reporting. New York at the time was peppered with these little for-profit physician-owned hospitals that were his clients. And then hospitals went DRGs. Somebody introduced him to nursing homes. And again, he's a sole practitioner working at home a little bit. And so the hospital cost reports didn't matter as much. I was at Lehman Brothers, absolutely miserable. And he says to me, 23 years old, you know, you're interested in learning learning the nursing home industry. And I remember thinking that, you know, I was so miserable that if he said, do you want to come sell asbestos with me? I would have gone and done it because I was so miserable. Uh, So (laughs) I go to work for him for a couple of years for a little bit, doing the cost reports, not particularly happy, not particularly successful. And it was really just a a stroke of luck. It was 1995 and Medicare was getting prepared to roll out their first PPS, the rug system for skilled nursing facilities. And anytime they do that, they test it. And New York was a demonstration state. And New York pretty much had all of the demonstration participants of the six states. So that's 1995. I learned PPS. I learned the case mix demonstration project. I sort of make it my own. And then two years later, 1997, PPS is, becomes official, becomes uh, implemented or, or at least passed. And because I have case mix demonstration project experience, uh, 26 years old, I become a national expert on the PPS. Again, dumb luck there. So then I started going to different parts of the country and it just kind of took off from there. But if New York wasn't a demonstration project state for PPS and I didn't have that, you know, that timing, I wouldn't be here. Well, so I would argue two things from a leadership standpoint. I would say that in my experience in government, the private sector and the nonprofit world, that leaders to some extent make their luck because they have to be prepared for it. And then, yeah, you know, had you been in Wyoming at the time, you know, no offense with Wyoming and they weren't a demonstration state, you would have been prepared the heck, but it wouldn't have mattered. But what happened there was you developed expertise, you went to school, you were working in an industry, you were insightful to know that you hated it. Your dad brought you in. You were working for him. It was different. You weren't in the sweet spot yet, but you were basically training in the way that somebody trains from, you know, stepping up from a 5K to maybe a 10K. 
And when then the rug system happened, you were ready. You had prepared for it. So the dumb luck part is that you were in New York and New York is always a demonstration and, and the shift was happening. But the reality is, is that you prepared for the shift. I think it's incredibly beshared, unusual, weird moment that you and I are having this discussion when we are on the verge of another major shift in Medicare. And that is that shift that was announced last May to this resident classification system. So again, you're prepared to lead us through that, right? Yeah, you know, I like to think so. So yeah, RCS isn't happening, but what is happening is sort of the next iteration of it, the patient-driven payment model, PDPM, that'll start next October. And, and it's creating a lot of turmoil and excitement in the industry. So yeah, I mean, I like to think that that the different parts of the industry that I've touched, I guess the, the, the learning has been accretive and each component is important, starting with those cost reports. So it, it really takes, in order to, to do well in the nursing home business, skilled nursing business now, you really do have to, to touch on every aspect of operations, regulatory, uh, finance. So it's interesting times. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. Would you say that the time that we're in now in post-acute, long-term, transitional senior care is arguably one of the most intense times of change in recent history looking forward? You know, as I get older, it's, it's hard to, it always seems that way. So I try to be objective. I actually think about that quite a bit. And I think without question, there's more turmoil, there's more change. This is a transformative time in the industry more so than, than I've ever seen. I think the only thing that even came close was 1999 when we had that initial shift from cost-based reimbursement to PPS. But at that time, the changes were limited to inside the skilled nursing facility. Now we have another major change inside the skilled nursing right. facility, but we have all these other dynamic changes outside the facility in the entire healthcare ecosystem that are impacting us, which is a different type of pressure. And the states, for the most part, aren't as stable as they were 20 years ago in the Medicaid system. So you have all those three components. And yeah, I think we've, we are in the period of most activity, most change that, that I've ever experienced. Well, you know, you are a very valued member of the Health Facilities Association of Maryland and a number of other state associations. And I know that Governor Mark Parkinson at our American Healthcare Association counts on you as a trusted advisor. You know, the conversations that we are all in as association executives really focuses on this shift of dramatic one-dimensional change that we're used to. It's, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty common. It was change that could be severe historically, but it was about money in, money out, you know, resources. And it was about providers as islands unto themselves. And the type of change and transformation that we are now positioning our associations and our members to embrace is really like moving from regular old chess to three-dimensional chess. And it's not a simple dynamic problem where it's a challenge to our island unto itself, but we're talking about a group of islands, how we relate to home care or hospitals and vice versa. And what will be the demands of an aging boomer market? And how, do, how is it that we manage that the long-term market, actually we had a birth rate decline from the Great Depression going into World War II. So the reality is, is that compared to a few years ago, 
we actually have fewer really older elders. So going forward, the idea is in order to be successful in post-acute, long-term, transitional care, senior housing, you have to think in terms of where do you relate in the system and where do you relate to the consumer? Does that, does that resonate with you in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's an entire position. You know, we, just, we call it positioning. Where is the skilled nursing facility position within that specific market? And healthcare is such a local business that even within a state, even within a county, you have got different dynamics at play that change how that facility has to act. So uh, it is all those moving parts that are, that are impacting us. Absolutely. So, Mark, you know, that's this another thing that makes you and your enterprises really interesting because you're based up in New Jersey, but you have a really far, even though healthcare is local, people come from all over the country to seek your expertise in New Jersey. And you also travel all around the country offering that expertise. Tell us a little bit about some of your regional work and regional impact of either Zimit Healthcare Services or some of your affiliated businesses? Yeah, it's it, our whole model on the consulting model. Again, 99% of what we do is skilled nursing, a little bit of hospice, a tiny little bit of ho- hospital work and some outpatient clinics, but, but it's really strictly skilled nursing. And we have, I think at last count, about 52 full-time employees. We never use any contractors. And our model is we do a little bit for a lot of facilities. So at last count, we were up to something like 23, 2,400 individual providers that we are touching on an annual basis and, and other industry stakeholders. And the challenges that are being faced by providers across the country are pretty much the same. I mean, every market, again, is, is similar, but, and you've got to learn the nuances of each market, but the structure is the same and the challenges are the same. So part of, you know, the favorite part of what I've done in my career is, is going from town to town and state to state, places I'd never would have seen before, never visited otherwise, and learning the culture and learning the differences. And it's great to go from town to town, state to state, and see the similarities, but also see the differences in operations and culture and mindset. But the bottom line is we're all subject to the same regulations for the most part, the same fiscal restraints, the same labor challenges. And it's just that local flavor that, that changes the strategy. But it's one. It's been one of the, uh, my most favorite parts of my career, and and you know you don't you think about how these things happen from the very beginning, where the states that were strongest. Obviously, New York and New Jersey, we have a significant concentration of clients. Uh, those are our two biggest states. But our third or fourth biggest state is Louisiana, because I had met some people down there and formed relationships. But we're in. I think we have active clients in something like thirty-two to thirty-four states right now, and it's again the favorite part of of my career is going from state to state. Well, it's impressive. You really have built a national enterprise. So what gets you motivated in the morning? What gets you up in the morning? I'm not going to lie to you. About five years ago, six years ago, I was really bored. And if you had asked me five years ago, if I was going to be in this business in five years, I don't know if I would have said yes, or at least by choice. Things changed really in a hurry for me. The market changed. More challenges on a day-to-day basis, again, from inside the skilled nursing facility to the market outside of it. And we started getting involved in these ancillary businesses, what I call ancillary related businesses that have to do with care management te- technology, a company called Real-Time Medical Systems, founded by a, a member of your local community, Dr. Rifkin. Yeah, I'm a big supporter. I think it's a, I, let me just jump in. I think it's a game changer. I think Real-Time has the potential to really make a difference, but go on. Yeah, no, it's, it's phenomenal. We wouldn't have gotten involved otherwise. Skilled nurse, I'm sorry, special needs plans, the institutional managed care for that long-term care population, managing the care. 
It's been one of my favorite parts of it. Case management, outsourced case management. We've got all these moving parts now. And then you take a look at, at what's happened in the hospital side of it, where they start being more accountable for quality and readmissions and how the skilled nursing facilities need to react. That has become an exciting part of what we do. Again, the data, the analytics that have come into it, it's become a much more interesting, vibrant, challenging space to operate. And I think that has really stimulated me where you're taking pieces from, from every discipline, again, from the cost reporting to the MDS, to the quality, to the, the data analytics on the outside, to the ancillary contracts and the risk sharing. It's, it's been incredibly exciting. The only part that I haven't enjoyed that I really, really don't enjoy in our day-to-day are all the audits that facilities are exposed to from recovery audit contractors and third parties. When we have to come in and defend facilities on that, it's blood money. I really don't enjoy that. I think, I think they're a little bit overzealous at times, the auditors. But other than that, it's, it's, it's a blast. Well, I hear the passion in your voice and I know the organizations that you impact and how they look to you as a resource and as a partner so you should, you should be proud of the work that you do and, and the brand that you've established. So if you had to define what it is, what the problem is that Zimit Healthcare Services seeks to solve, what would you say that is? What's the problem that Zimit Healthcare Services seeks to solve? I would say that it's really the value equation. We look to unlock the full value potential of any skilled nursing facility, any post-acute care provider. Because within, again, within that skilled nursing facility in the surrounding environment, there is so much activity that there is an equation, there is a, a resonance frequency they, they, they taught us in, in engineering way back when, that you can optimize all those inputs to give you the greatest output. So it's a question of efficiency, it's a question of quality and positioning and, you know, even financing. We hooked up with, uh, we aligned with, with a finance company, Greystone, to unlock that, that same value equation. That's really where we, where we have been positioning ourselves to assist facilities achieve that goal. Yeah, makes, makes absolute eminent sense. I think, it's, I think it's brilliant. So in all of this, what do you consider your personal mission? That, that mission that straddles your personal life, your community life, and your professional life. What's your mission? You know, I just, I want to be a good professional, I think, above anything else. I never want to be paid for anything that we don't do better than anybody. I never want to take on any engagement that I'm not confident me and my firm can do better than anybody else. And I really want to ensure that my clients are well-positioned and healthy and sustainable going concerns for the future. I just have a tremendous connection to my clients and many of them honestly have become my best friends. So. Yeah, I've seen that up close and personal. It's true. It's true what you say. So are you, with all the change that's going on, all that you've seen dating back to the 90s and this incredible transitional time that we're in now, are you bullish or bearish on the future of post-acute, long-term and senior care? I'm always bullish, but there's always a qualifier. Again, if I answer 10 years ago, five years ago, it's different. The, the industry is harder. It's, it's a harder business. There's more metrics and variables that, that impact. Some of them are, are in our control, some are out of our control. But overall, a well-positioned facility, a well-run facility should succeed in the future if they can manage their, their costs, if they can 
create the relationships that if they can deliver quality, because one thing is unassailable, the patients are going to be there. The need is going to be there. The demand, you mentioned it before, the aging population. If you look at the numbers, Medicare is expecting to double post-acute spending in the next 20 years or whatever those exact figures are. The demand will be there. Right. It's, it's how we position ourselves as quality, efficient, value operators that'll dictate it. So I am very, very bullish for the well-run, well-developed, well-positioned facilities. There's no room anymore. We can't take a punch. There's no margin for error really for us anymore. The industry cannot take a punch. That said, it's become more challenging and those challenges need to be met and the opportunities are there. Yeah, you know, what I, what I tell my members are people are at the heart of your enterprise, whether you are operating as a for-profit or a non-profit entity, quality is your product and data and knowledge are your power. You know, to that end, one of my clients has a quote from Maya Angelou uh, outside uh, by their office. And I, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's people won't remember what you said, what you did. They'll always remember how you made them feel. And so many people tell me, you know, when the phone rings at my house at, uh, at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night, and I see it's somebody I know, but shouldn't be calling me Tuesday night at eight o'clock at home, I pick up the phone and I say, who needs a nursing home? Because that's always the question. And then afterwards right. I follow up, uh, I'll give them some advice on where to go, where I prefer. And when they come back to me, the response is always the same. It's not a generalization about the nursing home. The first thing is, oh, so-and-so is great. Whether that so-and-so is a nurse or a CNA or the administrator or a housekeeper that made a connection with their loved one who was in the facility, that's the first thing they say to me. And that, that should really tell you everything we need to know about this service business, about the, the connections to people and, and how we value that. That one connection can make all the difference. Uh, I agree. And I, and I have the same experience. So tell me, what are the governing values that have played a part in your life? Governing values, personally or professionally, I should say. Let's, let's go personal. We've talked so much about professional. You know, I, you know, there's so much, yeah, personally, at this point, I just want to be a good father and husband. Honestly, that's pretty much the end of it. <laughs> the partying days are over. Now it's time to just take care of those, those, those two primary roles, father and husband. I think uh, you and I are in the same place. You know, I'm an older dad and I have young boys and everything wraps around the fact that I want to be a, a good husband and a good father. Everything else, uh, you know, is wrapped around that. Yeah, so I can, but I'm, I can I'm, live I'm, with any other shortcoming. I couldn't live with right. shortcomings on that, on those fronts. Isn't that amazing how we evolved that way as people? That wasn't true when we were in our thirties, right? It wasn't true when I was uh, in my early forties. How about that? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's true. Honesty is, is I, I'm brutally honest. And I always say, I don't have to be politically correct. I just have to be honest. And that's what I, I strive for. And, and working with my father early on, who obviously had a huge influence as, as a mentor, professionally and, and obviously personally. And the one lesson he taught me from the, from the very beginning when I first started in this industry and people, we started talking to learning, meeting people in the industry and what uh, sort of the interactions, he said, don't prostitute yourself. He goes, don't bring anything just to make a buck. Make sure it brings value. And, and I've never forgotten that lesson from day one. So I think professionally and personally, yeah, that's, that's I mean, really I think you were really fortunate that you learned that lesson early on. You know, not everybody does. And it's, it's a really, really important one. Have you had other mentors in your life in addition to your dad? Would you consider your dad far and above highest amongst all yeah, other no, mentors? No question about it. My father is, is number one. And, and just for the record, learning those lessons early in life, every lesson I've learned, I've learned a few. Every lesson I've learned 
has been the hard way. I don't think I've, I've taken any easy roads. I've beat myself up pretty good. I have no one to blame for myself for all of that, but certainly my father, number one. There's, there's been some other people throughout the years. I'll mention names. Uh, one of my first big clients in Pennsylvania, the CFO there, Drew Seibert from uh, New Corland, was tremendous impact. Uh, one of my early partners in the consulting, a gentleman by the name of Chris Wright in Connecticut, and then you, you learn things from, from different people along the way. The, the BBs out in Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, I try to follow their example, even though I don't speak to them as much. There, there are definitely key people in my life that as I've gotten older, I'd say, how would they handle this? How would they handle this? And it's you know pretty distinct and pretty obvious when I'm about to make a decision and I'll say those three gentlemen wouldn't handle it that way and I pivot and, I'm, I, and I, I reach out because certainly... I, I try not to make decisions unless I'm certain. And I wish I could tell you it took me less time to become certain. But, and also I've had a great partner on the clinical side, Cheryl Rosenfield, who has been with me 20 years. She taught me the other side of this business. She really has. It's been a great experience in so many different ways. So I think that, that um, those, are, those, are, those are major components right there. Well, that says a lot about you. I think people listening to our podcast today will benefit from knowing all of that from you. And I just want to explicitly point out another leadership behavior that you might not have sort of caught in all that is that you hit the pause button in your decision-making process. You, you, you are reflective in your decision-making. And that's another choice that effective leaders make in choosing their path. And it's neat to hear coming from you. <laughs> Again, I've learned my lessons the hard way. So... I wish I could tell you that, that I didn't, but... Well, that's all right. You made it. So listen, on August 8th and 9th, people, providers will be coming from all over the country for your annual conference in, what is it, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, right? Yeah, we do it every year. This is roughly our 20th year. We, we hold it down in Borgata, Atlantic City, and it's, it's grown every year. It's been really, really interesting. Last year, we had over a thousand people all in. I think if we added up the facilities that were represented there, it's probably more than a third of the industry, people from all over the country. It's a great mix. And it's become, it's, it's, it's really an education conference, big networking component, but we focus on the reimbursement compliance, regulatory issues that the industry is facing. And it's my favorite and most stressful two days of the year. Well, you know, we sent, I sent the team member last year. I'm looking forward to joining you there this year. A number of my state colleagues, my state association Executive colleagues will be there this year, as will a number of HFAM members from Maryland and ACA members and NCAL members from around the United States. So it is this year the Peace, Love, and Reimbursement Conference, <laughs> August 8th and 9th at the Borgata in Atlantic City, put on by Zimit Healthcare Services Group, LLC. If people are still interested in attending, can they just go online and register for it? Yeah, they could just go online. Uh, registration, I think we're up to about 600, a little over 600. So there's still some spots. But you know, you, you mentioned Wyoming before, just for the record. Uh, somebody yeah. from the Not-for-Profit Association signed up from Wyoming the other day. So Isn't that uh, great? Age. That's exciting. That is fantastic. So Mark, listen, I want to thank you so much. You have been such a mensch in my life here at HFAM. We don't get to spend a lot of time together, but I admire you so deeply I appreciate what you do for our members here in Maryland. And I meant it when I said that I know that Governor Parkinson at ACA and NCAL counts on your wise counsel. So you're a blessing in our lives. And I, I can't thank you enough for being our guest today on HFAM's Quality Care Talks. 
for the benefit of our members and all of our listeners out there on this podcast. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. This is just a testament to the strength of the association. This was, this was great. Thank you so much. You're the best. All right. Be well. You too. Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org.